Hi, everybody. All right. Wow. Hey, live. Tony. Tony, take away. Tony, 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 Tony. Tony Marcolini here. I'm an attorney and a professor here in the great state of New Jersey. I'm joined today with my two co-hosts, author and attorney, uh, John Hartman, and former White House chef and uh, executive chef at Camp David, Marty Mangello. So, and we have a very special guest here with us today. Uh, if uh I, I mean, I, I can't imagine it, you haven't read one of his books because he's got a lot out there, uh, but he's a, is a best-selling author. I personally, I think I've read almost everything of his, uh, so oh. I'm really excited to have him on. Uh, so, Matthew Dix, welcome. Thank you. That was very nice to hear. I appreciate that. Oh, well, I, I think I've honestly read everything you've written. Uh, I'm fascinated with your style. Uh, because if, if you've and guys, if you've never read him, I don't, I don't know. But he make he finds heroes in the most unlikely places, uh, and I think that's what fascinated me. Uh, you know, in the beginning with him, uh, because like you don't see that. I mean, heroes are so so heroes are so so typical uh, in most books that you read, but. Matthew seems to have zeroed in on just the unlikely people uh, and, and it takes you for a ride that is just irresistible uh, from beginning to end. Uh, I well, mean, Tony, I'm going to kick off with the credits. And when we come back um, in one second, can you ask him also about his comics? Because he writes oh, comics as well. It translated in 25 languages worldwide, but he also writes comics. <laughs> we love comics in this house. Yes, we're back again. As again, we're joined, but with uh, author Matthew Dix. And I guess I'll let Marty sneak his comic book question in before I get my chance on on the one the book I wanted to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I don't know enough about comics, but do they finish? You know, obviously all the drawings, Matthew, and then come to you and say, put words to these with with the actions, and or is it collaborative, or or is it a mix? How how do they usually do this? Well, I, I'll tell you that I don't know enough about comics either, to be honest with you. I've written them and been fortunate enough to do so, but oddly enough, I don't know very much about them and I don't read them much. But the way that I have worked with comic book companies is I come up with stories and I write those stories oh. and then they tell me I've overwritten them and then eventually we pull it back and eventually art is added to the stories that I write. So it's very wow. much for me just writing 
and sort of sending it off to people much better than I am to make the magic happen. I got to be honest. I don't know about you, John, but I never would have thought that the process was reversed like that. Yeah, I'm I'm like a visual, you know. Yeah. When did you start writing comics? It was uh, maybe five years ago. You know, I tell stories on stages, you know, around the world for organizations like The Moth and my own organization. And people saw me on stages telling stories about my life. And the thought was, let's take some real stories and put them into these fantastical worlds so that we can ground the stories a little bit and make them sound a little more natural. So a lot of the work that I've done is not taking sort of the amazing superhero zombie worlds that appear in the comic books I write in and just sort of placing normal stories to make those characters feel more real. So I, I do work like that. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, it just seems now like there are no more storytellers. You know, you hear about the pioneers and the people who sit down by the fire and someone just tell a grandpa and tell his long story. And that's just a, a, that's just shot out. Right. I mean, no one can tell us. I can't tell a story. How could you always tell a story or something you trained to do? But when you were a kid and you're at the campfire, the Cub Scouts, where you like telling these 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 yarns. I mean, how, how does that work? Storytelling is just like a lost art. Well, I mean, I, I like to think it's being found again just because, you know, I wrote a book about it and I, I do it now regularly. But I do hear what you're saying. You know, there's a lot of very bad storytelling in the world. When, when I work with people, what I try to do is make them into good storytellers. You know, I'll, I'll work with a marketing company and I'll try to improve their skills. And my business people always tell me when you improve their skills, you're sort of making yourself obsolete. And I say, don't worry there's a vast field of bad storytelling in the world and I will never get through all of it. So there's always another customer. I I think for me, I was so fascinated with movies as a kid. You know, when I was 10, I wrote to Steven Spielberg, or at least I thought I did. I wrote to him after seeing E.T. And I said, you know, I loved your movie, but you had one really stupid scene in it. And it seems like in all of your movies, you have one or two really stupid scenes. So if you'll send me the movie before you release it, I'll tell you what the stupid scenes are and you can make your movie perfect. It just occurred to me, like, within the last year that my mother probably never sent that letter, that there was no (laughs) way in 1982 that she was even able to find Steven Spielberg. But that was my mindset as a kid, as I was just always examining stories and trying to think about how they worked. And the way I got attention as a kid, I grew up in in a household where sort of the adults were not very interested in the children that were in the home. So the way that I tried to get attention was to tell stories. And I immediately became aware of the fact that if I told stories about my failures, my stupidities, my flaws, my mistakes, those were the stories that drew people's attention much more than, you know, hitting the home run to win the game or, you know, running faster than the kid next to me. So it was just something that I started doing as a kid that I found later in life was very helpful to my existence. You know, I can't tell a story to save my life. I still remember my kids were really young, and my wife says, put them to bed. I said, what do I have to do? He said, tell them a story. Well, I don't know any stories. So <laughs> what I did is I would take the Rambo movies, but replace them with Babar and Draxus. And a Rambo would be Babar, and he'd be in Vietnam. I couldn't tell a story to save my life. So I had about two stories, and then it stopped. Oh, well, you know, telling your own story probably would have been the right thing to do. You know, I've got a couple kids and they are endlessly fascinated with the stories that I tell about my own life. So, you know, I often tell people, don't think about fiction. You've got enough inside you already to share with the world to fully entertain the people around you if you do it well. I'm a criminal defense lawyer. So I was telling my, I can't really tell my kids about, you know, going to the jail and this guy's, (laughs) 
<laughs> I get it. Yeah. But it's a great that you're doing it. It really is a lot of art. It's so important. Thank do you. you. Do you test your stories out on your kids before you write them? No, I don't. I mean, the stories that I tell on stages, I never write them at all. I've never written a single word that I've spoken on a stage. Everything is done you know, auditorily and orally. The novels that I write, I mean, I'm a big believer in writer, obviously, writing, obviously, because I write novels. All of that writing is very different. I view the two very differently. When I write a novel, I get to make everything up. It's actually a little easier in that regard. Whereas if I'm telling a story about my life, I think of it as a puzzle. Like I'm saddled with the facts of my time and I have to figure out which facts to include, which to exclude, what order to tell them in, how to frame them. So the two processes for me are very, very different. So, so my kids don't get anything tested on them ahead of time. Well, the first experience I had with you, and I think it is your first novel, was Something Missing. Yeah, that uh, was my first. Yeah. That's the first I read of you. And it's such a unique story, really, for the audience who hasn't have not or not familiar with it. It's really the story of uh, a house burglar who has OCD. <laughs> I mean, and his, you know, and, and a good heart and his experience with having OCD and going into these houses. And he doesn't really rob, um, you know, he's not taking cash. He goes in and takes like half the butter, half, uh, you know, or he brings packages and like half the cereal. Like he a certain part, like the, what he would need to, to live. And he sort of develops this, I guess there's a loneliness to him, and he develops a, a fake friendship in his own mind uh, or affinity for the houses. He goes back to the same houses always, and he follows their lives uh, and ultimately winds up uh, protecting, protecting them. them. Like he, he literally cares for the people that he's robbing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he winds up being the very unlikely hero because he saves one of their lives uh, in the book. But it, it's so worth the read. And I and I found like I could again. It was one of the books that I could not put down. Oh, it's nice. Thank you. It was an enjoyable book to write. I mean, it was my first one, so you know, it was sort of that magical. I wrote a book. It'll never get published, but at least I wrote a book. And then I got fortunate enough to to have people like it, and you know it ended up in bookstores. It was really, it was a miraculous thing for me, you know, someone who, you know, was homeless and in jail and, you know, I had a really rough go of it for a long time. So I always wanted to be a writer, but I thought my, my view of writing was if I write a book someday, that would be amazing. Anything after that would probably be impossible. So the fact that I actually have even a career in writing is always astounding to me, even to this day. Wow. That's now that's an interesting story of, uh, reinventing yourself and hope. Wow. Yeah. It, it took a while, but you know, hope is actually the perfect word for it. You know, I lost a lot of things in my life, but I always tell people the absolute worst moment for me in terms of uh, my life and the struggles I had was when I didn't have any more hope. I, I just think that that is the last thing that you can lose. And so, you know, there was a time when I didn't have any hope and it was an ugly time. And thankfully, some people stepped in and helped me when I needed some help and I managed to pick myself up. But yeah, hope is the right word. Yeah, same thing. It's a gift for everybody. And uh, same situation with me, man. Yep. Thank God my dad, uh, you know, stepped in and helped me out when he did. Yeah. Did, did you know anyone with OCD before you wrote that book or... <laughs> <laughs> because it's so, it's so it's so I think it's so on point, you know, with the character. Well, when I wrote it, 
it was funny because I didn't think he had OCD. You know, people would say to me, my friends would read it and they'd say, boy, this character's really OCD. And I say, no, he's just like me. What are you talking about? You know, he's just oh effective. I just said like, he's organized and effective. That's not OCD. Uh, you know, and that 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 is a very spectrumy term, you know, in terms of how far along you are on the continuum. My second book actually has a character who has a debilitating form of OCD, like a compulsion. It's a real tragedy for him. Right. So when I was writing the book, honestly, I had no clue that this character had any kind of OCD whatsoever. I just viewed him as highly effective and extremely organized. And as I started looking at the book and reading it more and studying the character and, and understanding how many parts of that character are found within me, I took a good hard look at myself and said, all right, you might be a little inflexible at times and a little rigid and... <laughs> You may have a few of these characteristics too. So it was well, not something I was thinking about at all. It's amazing, you know, Tony, that you asked that because you remember uh, one of our guests a couple of shows back, Michael Angeli, uh, who was uh, ex executive producer, co-producer for Black Sales with Netflix. Um, he said actually that Monk was portrayed, what, off of a friend of his, a very close friend yeah, of his. Did. And, right. and that's where he got all the... And, and so listening to you ask this question, a lot of times I think writers are actually writing about things that they, they know about or people yeah. they know about. And well, sometimes unknowingly too, like, you know, in that book, there's a father, you know, Martin's father in that book uh, is, is an important person that ends up being. And one of my first, one of my first interviews about that book, someone said, how is Martin's father like your own father? And I said, oh, I don't know my father. So he's nothing like my father. And then my wife from the back of the room said, he is your father. You were writing about your father, stupid. And I remember sitting there and going, oh, my God, he is my father. So, uh, so often my wife has to read my book and tell me what I was writing about and how it reflects what's in my heart and Thank mind. Thank you, wife. What's yeah. your wife's name? You got uh, to Alicia. Alicia. Thank you, Alicia. <laughs> Does she edit for you or... No, no, she's um she is a supportive reader who is willing to tell me when I'm being stupid is really what she does. I mean, there's a great scene in the in the book when I first realized I think that he had OCD uh, where he knocks the uh, the electric toothbrush. I mean, he's he's there robbing the house, uh, you know, but he knocks her electric toothbrush into the uh, I want to say it's the garbage pail. The toilet. The toilet. Okay. Yeah. The yeah. toilet. Right. So, and he, and he, and he cannot bear the thought of just picking it back up and leaving it there for her. Like he's, he's just overwhelmed mentally. He has to go to the store and find her the exact same item and bring it back and replace it. Right. And that's Which the creates I, problems. Right. Yeah. It's the first I realized like, oh yeah, this, this character has, has OCD. Yeah. Um, you know, which, you, you realized it and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting you say that uh, I, I read the memoirs of an imaginary friend as well. Uh, and this is a book, I mean, that I think everybody should read. Uh, it, it really tells the story. And again, Max is a little boy and I, I'm thinking he has he's something on the uh, autistic spectrum. Uh, I, ne I never identify in the book specifically. In no. my mind, in my mind, he's in, on the autism spectrum. But the amazing thing that's happened with that book is, as parents read it, whatever they have in their life, they immediately see it in Max. So I've had parents write to me and say, 
my son is depressed like Max. You captured that so perfectly. My son is socially, emotionally disturbed. You captured that so perfectly. So people are so easily able to sort of imprint their own experience on that character just by me avoiding a label. So I, I did that on per, on purpose because I just think that all of these things, as an elementary school teacher, I know that everything is sort of a spectrum and it's hard to identify kids as specific things. And oftentimes that's not the, the best way to go. So I didn't want to label it in any way. And it's really worked out well for that book and for the people who read it. Sure. You know, and, and it's not only that uh, you, you're telling Max's story, but you, you literally filter it through uh, the eyes of his imaginary friend who's writing his memoir about his life, the the, the time that his imaginary friend spends on earth. And, and it's not, I mean, it sounds like it's a child's book, but it really isn't. It's a book, you know, for adults. I read the book from cover to cover again, a very uh, finding a heroes in very unlikely places. Yeah. It's like the little prince sort of. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I agree that it's not written for kids, although it has uh, crossed over certainly into the YA market and it's actually won awards for children's writing, even though I definitely think it, think of it as an adult book. It's another book that when I finished writing it and my wife read it, she said, so you decided to write about your terrible fear of death this time? And I said, no, I didn't. And then I thought, oh my gosh, I did. That's basically what that book is about. It's a existential crisis of an imaginary friend who realizes I am temporary in the same way that, you know, only in my very darkest moments, am I willing to acknowledge that I am also temporary and I will not always be here. You know, that is a thought that I really can't allow into my head too often, or I sort of fall apart, but that's essentially what the book is about. Like the idea that we're here for a certain period of time and what can we do with that time? And I agree with you that the heroes I'm most interested in are these smaller heroes. You know, I'm really fascinated with the idea that as we're, as we grow and as we deal with children, we always tell kids to blaze their own path, like find their own way. Don't adhere to peer pressure, be yourself. But what I think happens is the adults who actually do that, who blaze their own trail, avoid peer pressure, refuse to conform, they're often punished for their inability to conform. You know, as much as we want kids to sort of find their own way, the older we get, the guardrails get a little tighter for people. And when you step outside those guardrails, you often do end up sort of on the outside looking in. So I'm always fascinated in writing about characters who are willing to be themselves in a world that doesn't really want them to be themselves. I think those are the most courageous human beings in the world are the ones that dare to be what other people do not want them to be. And those are the people I tend to write about the most. Well, Tony, do we have a second to take a look at Matthew's website and show everybody how to get there? Uh, I think that might be helpful to drive uh, traffic in and just also to share um, he has a ton of goodies on there, honestly, uh, starting with right when you first come in. But his uh, biography is is really fun. And uh, uh, somehow or another, um, as a storyteller, I think uh, getting on stage and talking is, is in Matthew's blood as well. So, Matthew, do you want to tell us a little bit about that, being on stage behind a microphone? Yeah, well, it's something I started doing 10 years ago. I just celebrated my 10th anniversary in, you know, what we call storytelling, which is I stand on stages and tell stories about my life and sometimes do things like TEDx talks and inspirational addresses and commencement speeches. It's something I didn't plan on doing, you know, 10 years ago, the moth, you know, the big granddaddy of storytelling 
they put out a podcast and my friends heard the podcast and said, you should go to the moth in New York and compete. You've had the worst life of anyone we know. Therefore we know you'll be, it's not a nice thing to say to your friend, by the way. And it's not true. (laughs) You know, I have had a life where like a bunch of unusual things have happened to me. And so they thought that's why I would be successful. So I went with the plan of telling one story and never doing it again. And even that night I tried to get out of it, you know, they put names in a hat and they only pull out 10 names. And so when my name came out of the hat that night, I didn't stand up. I I stayed still and quiet. I figured nobody knows who I am. Eventually they'll just, you know, move on to another name. But my wife was with me that night. She kicked me under the table and said, that's your name. Get on stage. And thank God she did. You know, I got on stage. I hated every moment of that evening until I started speaking into the microphone. And as soon as I did that, I just felt like, oh, this is where I should be. And I won that competition. I'm a terrible, competitive human being. So that was good too. And, you know, it just started there. And um, I told stories for the Moth and other organizations for a couple of years. And my wife and I launched an organization here telling stories. And then eventually this crazy thing happened where people started asking me to help them tell stories. And at first it was just regular human beings. And then it was priests and ministers and rabbis. And then it became companies, you know, marketing companies and um, you know, it became advertising agencies and universities. And so now I, I work with all kinds of people. Santa Claus is one of my last people I worked right before the pandemic with teaching Santa Claus how to tell good stories. So (laughs) Tony, do we have a second just to watch maybe 20 seconds? Uh, sure. Okay. Few dicks. Oh, this is in Pittsburgh. I think this is going to suck. The That's the name of the story. Yes. Thank you. It's December 23rd, 1988. I'm 17 years old. I'm coming out of the record store and I have a shopping bag in my hand. I see my friend Pat. He's coming towards me. He sees the bag and he asks me what's in it. I tell him it's a concert t-shirt. It's a Christmas present. It's a surprise Christmas present for our friend Benji, my best friend. Pat looks at me a little funny. And Pat's only 15, but he is already cooler than I will ever be in my entire life. So when he looks at me like this, I've learned to pay attention. Pat tells me that guys don't buy Christmas presents for other guys. He tells me they especially don't buy surprise Christmas presents for other guys. He tells me that he has dated girls for six months and never bought them a single thing. So for me to buy Benji a surprise Christmas present is really strange. I'm suddenly feeling very self-conscious about the betta fish in the backseat of my car, the one I bought for Pat like an hour ago at the pet store, (laughs) and the comic books I bought for Coog, and the sweatshirt I bought for Tom. I have filled my car with Christmas presents for my friends, and I know that Pat is right. It is strange to buy surprise Christmas presents for your friends, but it's been a long time. since I've had a good Christmas, and I want this year to be different. Through a combination of a failing marriage and persistent poverty and a terrible stepfather, the last Christmases have just been a disaster. A couple years ago, my parents were fighting in the kitchen. They were, they were screaming at each other just about a week before Christmas. And my stepfather, Neil, told my mother he was leaving, and this was it. And when he left, there was going to be no money, and we weren't going to have Christmas. And so my brothers and sisters and I did the only thing we could. We went went to the the basement. basement. We took out the Christmas tree from the box and we started pulling the tinsel, last Mm. year's tinsel, off the tree and ironing it out. 
we were thinking if we could get the tinsel, we could get enough, then we could tell our parents that they wouldn't have to buy that. And then maybe there would be enough money for Christmas, no matter what happened. So I want this Christmas to be different. And it's going to be different because for the first time in my life, I have money in my pocket. I'm a McDonald's manager. I'm still going to high school, but I'm working at McDonald's full time. I make $5.75 an hour, and I am the richest person who I know. And I am going to use this money to buy myself a great Christmas. So I'm headed home now. I'm in my car. It's my mother's 1976 Datsun B210. It's a... Well, Tony, question did you did you pull it off? The, it looks like you're talking off the top of your head. Did you prepare that? Did you prep it? Did you write it out? How's how's your process work before I actually give a story? You know, I don't write it out because that's a story from my life. Uh, you know, I say to people that I don't memorize my stories; I remember them. So I remember what I want to say in each scene. You know, I certainly memorize the first and the last lines of most stories. I'll have some laugh lines memorized and things like that. But I don't, I don't believe in memorizing a line-for-line line situation. I don't think it comes across natural. And I think the worst thing that can happen is when you memorize things and you forget a line, you're in a lot of trouble. You know, I used to do plays. And if you forget a line on stage in a play, there's someone else on stage to bail you out, to whisper a line to you, to, to help you. But when you're standing on a stage all by yourself and you're the only one who really knows the story, you can't afford to suddenly not be able to remember something. So, you know, I remember that I'm going to start at the record store. I'm going to talk about Pat, the, he's the beta fish joke. And then I know I'm going to move over to, you know, talking about my past. And I'm going to tell them about the Christmas tree and the tinsel, but that's sort of how I remember it. And, you know, I, I work through it, but every time I tell it, it's going to come out a little differently. I haven't heard that recording in a long time. And even listening to it now, I can hear the things that I did that night that I would probably do differently today just because it's not memorized. It's just remembered. You know, uh, 40 years ago, you would have made a fortune on radio. It's just, I mean, it reminds me of like when I was literally listening to radio or records, my mom would get records of stories. And it's just, just like that, the way you were talking. It's remarkable. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a man out of time, unfortunately. <laughs> you have a, a true, there's a real gift you have there. Thank you. Yeah. Hello. Do you still write a column? I think you were a columnist as well, right? For Slate Magazine and uh, maybe your digest. I write a column for Slate and ask the teacher column because I'm an elementary school teacher. So I answer questions from readers about teaching. And then I write a humor column for a magazine called Seasons. I write that, la that back page funny column about some moment in my life or some observation that I have. So I still write those columns as well. So are you still teaching today? Yeah, I still, uh, 23 years in, I still teach. It's um, wow. It's what I love to do. It's five minutes from my home. It's 20 to 25 kids. They're 10 years old. They're excellent until May, and then they slowly become horrible people, but I'm willing to put up with it because it's May. You know, my business people tell me all the time that every time I go to school, I lose money. You know, like we could definitely be making yeah. more money with these hours than what you're making teaching, but it is the thing I love to do right now. So what are, what are you teaching? I'm going to assume English and writing, but I may be wrong. It could be. Gym. No, I, I'm an elementary school teacher. So I teach all the subjects. I've got the same 20 to 25 kids oh, all day with me in the same classroom. What's, what's your grade? Uh, have you gone through several grades or I, I've been teaching fifth grade for the last 14 years. And prior to that, I taught third grade for 10 years and second grade for one year. So 
You know, yeah. I bounced around a little, but I've sort of locked myself in. They can't really move me now because I'll just retire on them if they try to. Yeah. <laughs> if they try to move. Well, what me. a great, what a great testament you are. Yeah, it must um, be. Yeah, for you teaching know, I mean, and. I don't name my second, my second grade teacher, my fifth grade teacher are fantastic. I can't remember any high school teachers, but the people made a real difference. My fifth grade teacher was a wonderful guy called Mr. Merle Smith, fantastic guy, and Miss Nathan uh, was my second grade teacher. Right off the top of my head. Oh, almost 50 years ago. I mean, just really nice people made a real good impact on me. Yeah. Well, I mean, we try, you know, I'm not, I tell people I'm not the best teacher in terms of pedagogy. There's teachers in my school who design brilliant lessons that I do not design as well. But what I do with my students is I tell them stories all the time about my life and I open up spaces for them to tell stories about their life. And we create sort of a judgment-free zone where we can really get close to each other. So the way I'm effective is I make such connections with kids that when it comes time to teach long division, I don't have the best lesson, but I have a group of kids that are willing to run through a wall with me. So I can just sort of motivate kids despite the fact that my lessons aren't always the best and my planning isn't always superb, but I managed to get the job done. And I believe in fun. I believe the number one thing in school should be fun. I, I was a kid who did not behave well in school. And I know the reason I didn't behave is because it was never fun for me. So I think that before you plan anything in teaching, the first thing you have to do is give kids a reason to want to learn. The problem is so often teachers are the excellent students. You know, they grew up loving school and loving learning and loving teachers. And so they just assume that the people in front of them are like them. And I always try to teach to the kid who doesn't want to be at school, which is the person I was. And so my goal is first, what am I going to do to get them to want to learn now I'll figure out how I'm going to teach them. And if I have that model in place, kids are having fun. I don't have discipline problems. And we manage to get through the day really well. Yeah, God forbid a child would have fun at school. That is forbidden. I bet you're a really cool teacher. But I want to tell you, give me 30 seconds. My fifth grade teacher was a guy called Mr. Merle Smith. Uh, he was the most interesting guy I ever met. He was 18. He joined the Marines. He was... Uh, he operated a flamethrower during Iwo uh, Jima. Fantastic guy. He then, about 10 years later, he sailed around the world in a, uh, he made a boat that looked like an old Chinese boat. It's actually National Geographic. Mr. Merle Smith, the guy was remarkable, a remarkable man. I still remember very well. He's my fifth grade teacher, and he had a really interesting life. I think a lot of times those are the people that make great teachers, you know, and especially when you're willing to share your life, you know. I've told my students that I was homeless for a period in my life. And I had a, a little girl come up to me after telling that story. And she told me she was living in her car with her mother and they were afraid to tell anyone. So I was able to help them with that situation. I tell my students I was in jail and I have kids come up and say my parents were in prison and I was afraid to tell anyone about it. You know, on the first day of school, every single year, the first story I tell the kids is how in sixth grade at a pool party at the end of my school year, I went off a diving board. And I hadn't tied my bathing suit. And so as I hit the water, I left my bathing suit behind. I was naked in my swimming pool, surrounded by my classmates. And I had a father once say, like, why are you talking about being naked on the first day of school to my daughter? And I said, because I want your daughter to know that I'm going to be vulnerable and honest with them at all times and that they can do the same for me. And, and it's why so often my female students, when they have their first period in fifth grade, even though there's women everywhere in my elementary school, I have so many of my girls come up to me and say, 
Mr. Dix, I just had my first period. And I always think like, why are you telling me? I don't use the product you require. I'm not familiar with what you're going through. There's three women right over there who you could be speaking to instead of me. But it's because I'm always honest and vulnerable with them. I tell them what a fool I am. I tell them about my shame, my embarrassment, my struggle. And then they feel like they can do the same for me. And so I think that's probably what you get from your special teacher is the idea that this is a person who's lived a slightly different life and is going to share it with you and make you feel connected in a way that helps a lot. Well, Matthew, you're going to love this. But one day I went to pick my daughter up at third grade or second grade and they had gotten a bunch of worms in for the science experiments. And so the teacher said, Mr. Mangella, Mr. Mangella, uh, can I talk with you? I was like, oh, sure, yeah, what's what's going on? She's like, today, Rainia blurted out in the middle of the class that worms are asexual and have a penis and a vagina and that they they, <laughs> they turn like that and have sex with each other. And did you know about that, that, that she was saying this? I'm like, well, no, I didn't. I'm not in your classroom, but um, is, is there anything incorrect about that? She's like, <laughs> well, no, there's not anything scientifically incorrect about that, but I just was surprised at the veracity of, of her explanation to suddenly state that out loud. I was like, well, honestly, I think I'm to blame for that. We had a whole bunch of questions this morning about chickens and stuff, and somehow I related it to your worm experiment because the worms came in in the box and other kids on the worms every day. Rainy comes home, how's the worms doing today? And she, she was like, oh, okay, so you're okay with it. I'm like, well, yeah, it's, it's true. It's the birds and the bees. It's the right. truth. Yeah. I don't want to hide the truth from her. She's like, uh, uh, okay, I just wanted to make sure that you knew about it. She she was so worried about it, Matthew. Yeah, it's, a, it's funny. I had a kid this year ask me in the middle of a history lesson what pansexuality was. And I remember I had a moment and I, I had to make the decision, are we going to cover the middle colonies today and understand the economics of Maryland in the pre-colonial times? Or are we going to talk about pansexuality? And I just made the call. I said, you know what? I think we're going to just talk about pansexuality because I think in the end that is going to be more important to these kids than the economics of pre-colonial middle colonies. Like that is definitely on Wikipedia and and that can be consumed in a way that doesn't really require the nuance of an adult and a conversation that can be, you know, monitored and kept respectful and get questions answered that kids want, you know, but it is, it's a different kind of, approach to the world that I certainly didn't have as a kid myself. You know, no one told me about the birds and the bees as a kid. I remember sitting on my bed, begging in my mind for my parents to come to my basement bedroom and tell me what sex was because I didn't know. And without the internet, the only way you find out is you go to the librarian and you say, Mrs. Harris, can I have a book on sex, which you can't do. So you just, you know, in the 1980s, you just didn't get to know anything unless someone told you. Today it's different and I think it's better, but it does mean that my kids didn't get the middle colonies this year. So if that was important to someone, (laughs) the kids didn't get that. But I think that was a decent trade-off that day. You are a societal menace, I'll tell you. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, I know we're out of time because we have to move on to the next interview. Uh, And I regret that we didn't allow more time to talk to you. Uh, I hope that you'd be willing to come back again because I feel like there's so much left of your life that we didn't cover. Next book, next book, next book. Anytime. I would be happy to come back anytime. Thank you. Thank you so much. much. 
And again, I mean, Marty's saying for your next book, I, of course, I'd love to have you back for your next book, but I still have a ton of questions about your other books. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I do. I read, I've read everything that you've written. If, if for anyone out there who's looking for a great book, you can punch in Matthew Dix on your Nook or your uh, Kindle and any one of his books, you're not going to be disappointed. Well, thank you. That's that great. means a lot to me. And truly, anytime you want to have me back, I'd be love. I'd love to chat. This was wonderful. You're doing wonderful work with those kids, let me tell you. Thank you.